Odd Castle, episode 320, for July 15th, 2014. Baba Makosh, by M.K. Hobson. Rated R contains soldiers, war, devils, and hell. Not all of those are metaphoric. Hello and welcome back to PodCastle, the weekly fantasy fiction podcast where we travel all over the known worlds and some of the unknown ones, looking for the best in fantasy fiction week after week. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor. Today we have a special treat for you from the one and only M.K. Hobson. Hobson is no stranger to our podcast. We've run several stories of hers in the past. I think her story, The Warlock and the Man of the Word, was the first weird western we featured here, and her story, Hotel Astarte, was one of the very first Podcastle episodes we ran. We like her so much, we've asked her to read a bunch of our stories here, the most recent of which is Daniel Abraham's The Meaning of Love. You may have also heard her read Repo over at Escape Pod last month, as well as other stories over at Cast of Wonders. We also ask her to host on a relatively regular basis, and she doesn't turn us down, which is nice. That said, Hobson is not part of our editorial team, and so we were pretty thrilled when she shot this story into our inbox after she got it published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Hobson's currently working on Book 4, The Unsteady Earth, of her excellent ongoing Vinificus Americana series, which began with her Nebula-nominated The Native Star. Book 4 is currently a whole year late. Damn it, Hobson! Oh wait, she's got a written excuse from her mother, so yeah, I guess we're good. My fingers, though, are steepled in wicked anticipation. The story is read for you by Eric Luke. Eric is the screenwriter of the Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake, the comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman, and directed the not-quite-human films for Disney TV. In short, I guess he influenced a small but decent bit of my childhood. I think I watched the first not-quite-human movie about a dozen times as a kid and loved Explorers. Eric's most recent project isn't all that cuddly, though. It's the meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills. Interference. We'll run the promo for that after the show, but if you can't wait, get on iTunes or visit him at quillhammer.com. So, pull your coat tight as you march out into the wilderness. Make sure you have your rifle close, and do your best not to be there when hell freezes over. Enjoy the story. Baba Makosh by M.K. Hobson. 1. The slower you go, the farther you will be. It was cold and growing colder, and the moon was rising, and hell was nowhere to be found. Comrade Blodsky and Comrade Lvov were quarreling bitterly. Dunce! You've read the compass wrong as always. I didn't read the compass wrong! Commander Chernoff said we mustn't trust the map. Blockhead! This had been going on for quite some time. While they quarreled, the sky had faded from ice blue to bruise purple, and the moon had risen cold as a ball of clenched snow. Dark pooled in low hollows beneath the ink-stroke birches, and shadows moved within the frosty mist. 
stag-like shapes that moved like men. Pudovkin watched them. Comrade Blotsky shoved Comrade Lvov. Comrade Lvov stumbled over a twisted snag and into a drift of ice-crusted snow, making a crunching sound. Floundering, humiliated, Comrade Lvov called Comrade Blotsky a lazy, stupid hog and an embarrassment to the laboring class. Pudovkin hummed an old tune as he crouched beneath the paper-bear birches, arms wrapped around himself. Dazed with cold, he dreamed of his grandfather's tender baritone, how the old man would sing to him across the barley fields in summer. Kolya, Kolyusha, my dear, where have you gotten to? He dreamed of his grandfather's cabbage soup, rich with mushrooms and marrow, beef and butter, parsnips and potatoes. He dreamed of hot buckwheat porridge and roasted beets, dumplings with sour cream sprinkled with fronds of dill as fine as hair on the back of a maiden's slim neck. He and his comrades had not eaten for days, not since the vitamin-rich nutrient blocks Commander Chernoff had supplied them with had run out. With nothing but melted snow and birch bark to soothe their aching bellies, men became quarrelsome. Comrade Lvov launched himself at Comrade Blotsky's legs. Pudovkin sucked at an icicle on his mustache, salty, cold, moistening his lips. Hungry as he was, he did not miss the foil-wrapped nutrient blocks, which had the grainy consistency of compressed clay and tasted of chemicals. Even the hungriest new recruits from villages, ravaged by imperial depredations, found them nearly impossible to choke down. But the commander praised them as more fortifying and efficient than the cabbage and vodka that made up the regular Red Army ration. The commander was a man of modern ideas. He tested his advancements upon the men in his squadron. Rubberized heating mats that melted snow into mush and sometimes shorted out delivering random painful shocks. Bizarre scientific schedules of sleeping and waking and marching that were theoretically optimal for the biorhythms of young men. And then the pills. Dozens of pills. The orange pills were the worst. Without the nutrient blocks, Comrade Blotsky and Comrade Lvov had taken to gobbling the orange pills by twos and threes. Commander Chernoff had given them the pills to stave off hunger, but also because they made men wild and ferocious. They soaked men's souls in gasoline, made them receptive to the touch of flame, made them willing, eager, to execute the punishments commanded by Comrade Lenin's general order to burn the villages that harbored kulaks, to pulverize the women who harbored white fugitives, to spear screaming children. Pudovkin closed his eyes against a wave of sickening memory. He pressed his lips together and hummed louder. Pudovkin had decided that he would not take the pills. When Blotsky and Lvov discovered this, they had held him down in the snow and rifled his pockets. They had cried with feral triumph when they found his full ration still in its iron tin. But now those pills were gone too, and there was no food, and there were dark shadows moving between the trees. Blotsky slammed a fist into Lvov's gut. "'How will we ever find hell now?' Blotsky screamed insensibly. Lvov had his arms up over his face. "'How? For God's sake! How?' 
Blatsky had picked up a heavy stick, and Podovkin knew that once he brought it down, he would not stop bringing it down until the snow was soaked cherry red. Podovkin knew he should do something, but he could not move. It was cold, and it was growing colder, and looking at Blodsky's hands clutching the wood, all he could see were his grandfather's gnarled hands, like dirty roots pulled up out of the good earth. It was so cold, and he was wrapped in heavy green wool, and his hands were tucked under his arms, and he could hear his grandfather's voice singing to him. The situation was hopeless. There was no way they could make it back to where Commander Chernoff was waiting with the rest of the brigade. So the brigade would march up after them. And just like the advance squad, they would not find hell. They would find only this cold, empty place, full of moving shadows. He pulled his Zhalyeka from inside his coat. It was small enough that he'd been able to carry it with him. He had made the little flute himself, long ago, of birch bark from the trees by the river on his grandfather's land. He began to play a thin, wheezing sound that made the dark birches around them tremble like plucked strings. Blotsky and Lvov preferred to die quarreling. Podovkin preferred to die another way. Who was to say which death was better? But just as he finished playing what he thought would be his last note, Podovkin saw the old woman. She was plump, her skin as dark and glossy as rye bread. Her face was kind, and she smiled, but she looked very tired. She wore stiff, heavy, old-fashioned clothing, uncommonly rich, a brocade sarafan tied with a broad sash of fine black wool, and a kokoshnik decorated with pearls and gemstones. She stood among the ghostly birches, holding a wooden tray covered with a woven towel. On the towel sat a fragrant brown loaf and a silver dish of brownish salt. Blotsky gaped at her, stick dangling from his hand. Lvov scrambled to his feet. Ignoring her gentle gesture of hospitality, he seized the bread from the tray and crammed it into his mouth. Blotsky followed, growling like a hungry dog, tearing the bread out of Lvov's hands. The woman smiled at them, as if they were favored grandchildren. But it was Podovkin she looked at, and it was to him she spoke. Welcome to hell, she said. Two. Take the goods the gods provide. They followed the old woman through the moonlight, the silver beams picking out the patterns on her full skirt, trees, maidens, flowers, goddesses, all embroidered in red silk. Blotsky and Lvov had chunks of bread in each hand, alternating greedy mouthfuls. They walked east, boots crunching on snow, and came to a well-beaten path. The path had been trampled down by the hooves of cattle or elk. But no one drove cattle in the winter. My sons, keep the roads clear, the old woman said, as if reading the question in his mind. Podovkin glanced at the hem of her sarafan, counted the twelve plain narrow bands of black wool that decorated it. Twelve sons, he thought. While Blotsky and Lvov crowded the old woman's heels, eager to be led to more food, Podovkin fell back a little further, remembering how his grandfather would mark a trail in a strange wood. He bent branches, pointing dead stick-ends in the direction they were traveling. 
After a while, the forest thinned and they came to the foot of a hulking, jagged mountain. It was surmounted by the largest tree Podofkin had ever seen. It was as big around as a battleship, and even straining his eyes, he could not see the top of it. Its branches entwined with the stars that could be seen through the gloomy, snow-heavy clouds, and its massive roots framed the mountain itself. They bulged from its dark stone flanks like the veins in a straining man's throat. At the base of the mountain was a cave mouth, wide as a train tunnel and black as pitch. But the granny woman didn't break her stride as she vanished into the darkness. Blotsky stopped Pudovkin with an anxious hand. Is it safe, do you think? he whispered. We've been sent to find hell, Pudovkin said, pushing past him. If Granny got too far ahead, they'd never find her in the dark. Why should it be safe? Blotsky and Lvov hurried to follow Pudovkin into the darkness. Before their eyes could adjust, and after much hesitant stumbling, they saw a dim light ahead. They had arrived at a sheer cliff edge, high above a vast depression, a cauldron of stone at least two miles deep. How far the cavern stretched, Pudovkin could not see. The edges receded into murky indistinction. But what he could see was a village, far below on the cavern's floor, as brightly lit as Moscow the night before an official parade. How did the commander ever expect us to find this? Lvov breathed. Maybe if you could learn to read a compass, Blotsky grumbled. Then Lvov swore at Blotsky, and Blotsky threatened Lvov with a crumb-flecked fist. But now it was simple posturing, the age-old game of soldiers and children. The old woman led them down a steep, narrow path to the village. They walked past old-fashioned izbas, great clumsy piles of adz-hewn logs painted in rich blues and deep greens. They walked past barns with steep-pitched roofs that smelled of animals, cattle and sheep, warm, milky, wool, dank. There were no villagers to be seen, but all the homes blazed with light, and the smell of hearth fires blunted the crystal-sharp edge of the still-frozen air. It was the light that most interested Podovkin. There was no electricity this far out, and certainly not under a mountain. And this light wasn't like electric light anyway. It was bright, clear, and warm, unwavering, as if all the homes had put up summer sun in thick glass jars. He was reminded of a story his grandfather had told him, how the god Veles had once persuaded the sun to climb into a bottle of vodka. The canny, horned god had taken the sun, drunk, down with him, into the underworld. They came to the very heart of the village. Where one might expect to find a church, there stood a huge, strange building formed of the same twisted roots that made up the mountain itself. It was decorated with ornate scrolls of wooden gingerbread, fine and delicate as lace. Icicles hung from beneath the eaves, the walls were painted with violent slashes of red and blue, and everywhere, all over the building, were racks of shed antlers, held in place with hand-hewn iron nails thick as a man's thumb. "'This is the home of my husband,' the old woman said. "'My winter husband,' she added softly to herself. 
They came to the front entranceway, along a path that sparkled with frost. Before entering, the old woman brushed a set of antlers with her fingers. For good luck? For warding? This was a place of old magic, and Podovka knew he must be watchful. Inside it was very warm, and the air smelled of roasting meat and burning logs. The grand hall they entered was filled with wealth such as Budovkin had not seen in years, since the start of the Civil War. Plump sacks of wheat, barrels of salted pork, well-aged hams hanging from the rafters, glossy waxed wheels of cheese, burlap bags bulging with beets and potatoes and turnips. It was awe-inspiring, but it was also terrifying. In times like these, even looking upon such wealth felt dangerous. Even beholding prosperity might invite assumptions, draw accusations. He began to say something, but Granny hushed him. We must not speak. My sons approach. Even as she said it, the doors behind them burst open, and twelve large black creatures stampeded in past them, churning the air with their haste. They moved like stags, but also like men. Pudovkin could not tell which they were. He could not fix his eyes on them. He could not tell if they were walking upright or leaping. They appeared to be doing both at once. They gathered in the middle of the great hall, a hulking, indistinct mass that smelled of snowy night and dirty, slush-streaked fur. Within the seething assembly, Pudovkin glimpsed antlers. They exchanged low words, and as they did so, an even larger being rose up among them, taller and more massive than any of the others. Budovkin's heart stopped, then lurched forward painfully. This being, Budovkin could see very clearly. He was a giant, extravagantly robed like an old boyar. But instead of fur and brocade and pearls, his robes were made of some kind of mail, glistening, overlapping scales of silver and green. A pair of huge, curved horns jutted from his broad, dark brow. The Horned One, Pudovkin heard his grandfather's voice. Veles, the god of cattle and merchants, the great dragon that slithers among the roots of the tree of the world. Pudovkin fought the urge to fall to his knees. He turned to Blotsky and Lvov, hoping for some human confirmation of the astonishing sight before them. But they hadn't even noticed the god or his sons. They had fallen upon a wheel of cheese and were tearing off its wax covering with their teeth and fingernails. Insolent rats, he muttered, as Granny's hand reached for his. Together they knelt, pressing their foreheads to the cold floor. The god paid no attention to their homage. He was very busy. He had taken his place at the head of the hall and was seated on a great painted throne. One by one his sons approached him. From each he received something, a bag of coin that clanked as if it contained old gold kopecks, a carved jewel casket, a sheaf of parchment stamped with red wax seals. But often recognized these papers from his days at the university. They were how landowners used to account for the lives of their serfs. They were called souls. Tucking each rich offering away, Veles would then nod his heavy horns toward the larder, and each son would go and collect something from it. 
but often watched as one took two large bags of barley and a rasher of beef into his mouth, then thundered past them out of the hall. "'What is he doing?' Pudovkin asked Granny. "'Filling an order,' she yawned. Uh, "'Perhaps I will just lie down for a while, until he is ready for his dinner. Yes, I think I will lie down.' "'An order from who?' "'From a merchant who is willing to pay the price my winter husband charges, so he can charge his customers double.' She stretched herself out on the floor slowly, one joint at a time, as if she were laying out a very complicated puzzle. Podofkin blinked. But people are starving, he said. Does he not know? Surely he knows, Granny murmured. All animals must fight each other, and some will die. But we are not animals, Podofkin said. It was something Commander Chernoff said all the time, like a motto. He never thought he would find himself quoting Commander Chernoff. At that instant, however, he felt the sentiment very strongly. Living creatures take happiness when they are alive, she closed her eyes. They give happiness when they die. Either way, there is happiness. 3. Beat your own, and others will fear you. Granny was asleep, and Podofkin knelt beside her, watching the god Veles work. Behind him, Blotsky and Lvov shuffled and scritched. After a long time, each of the sons had been dispatched, and the hall was empty. Only then did Veles notice Podofkin, shifting on sore knees at the far end of the great hall. The god rose and strode the whole length of the room in two steps. It is a long time since we have had guests, he said. He towered over them. He had to be twelve feet tall. His thick snake's tail slithered over his boots as if polishing mud from them. But Ofkin trembled. Granny snored. Veles nudged Granny with a toe. Granny shifted away, muttering bad-temperedly. Veles' laugh rumbled the ceiling and the walls. Ha! 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 Lazy old Baba Makosh, he said, nudging her harder. But she just grunted and wrapped her arms more tightly around herself. And he said, Well, let her sleep. A while longer. Who are you? Blotsky demanded, from his perch by the cheese. Crumbs flecked his cheeks and his eyes glinted small and hard. What is this place? Have men forgotten me already? Veles asked. The words were spoken calmly, but Podovkin heard the knife edge hidden within them. We have not forgotten, Lord Veles. Pudovkin said quickly, wishing the cheese would glue Blotsky's mouth shut. We know you. You are the great dragon, the god of cattle and of merchants. Blotsky gave an outraged cry, and Lvov sucked in air between his teeth in a hiss. There are no gods in the post-revolutionary world, said Lvov. And no lords. And no dragons, Blotsky concluded. 
Podovkin looked back at his comrades with disgust. Blotsky's shirt front was streaked with stolen jam and his belly was distended with his recent gorging. No hell either, it is said, he barked. And yet, here we are. This isn't hell, Lvov scoffed, picking his teeth and releasing a satisfied belch that smelled of garlic sausage. Even if he is the devil. Cringing at his comrade's insolence, Podovkin said nothing more, just bowed his head and waited for the god's wrath to fall upon them all. But Veles continued to peer down at him. Old ways, Veles finally murmured. Old ways, new ways, it is all so hard to keep track of now. He turned his attention back to Granny, who was still snoring on the floor. Vele's face was dark and unsettled, and this time he kicked her very hard. All right, old Baba Makosh, he said. You've had your nap. Now go and fetch me dinner. Once Granny did wake up, she brought them not just dinner, but an entire feast, and she brought it in a mere instant. She emerged from the kitchen carrying a young suckling pig, brown and spit-crisp, steamed whole buckwheat spilling from its belly. She gave a sharp whistle, and a long, heavy table that walked on its own legs like a dog hurried to her summons. It was laid with heavy white linen and dishes of salt and earthenware tankards of braga and soup with sour cream, fresh spring vegetables, new dandelion leaves. Where had they come from? In the dead of winter. She brought in course after course, carrying each plate in herself, shuffling unceasingly between kitchen and table. While she was steady, she was not quick, and as fast as she brought a plate, Veles cleared it, leaving nothing for his guests. Blotsky and Lvov, sated from their earlier depredations, did not mind. But now, with their bellies full, they had become two clenched fists of suspicion. Their little black beady eyes were collecting testimony, and they whispered it occasionally to each other. They had finally come to understand that they were accepting hospitality from a god, a god of riches and wealth. What if it was a trap? Commander Chernoff had trapped men before, sent them to scout villages merely to see if they would warn the traitors within. He enjoyed letting men impeach themselves with their own sympathetic impulses. Pudovkin, though, was still so hungry that he had a hard time turning his thoughts from the parade of savory dishes that were swept away as quickly as they were brought. His guts hammered against his ribs, and he had to sit on his hands. He knew that it would not be wise to come between a god and his supper. Baba Makosh, hurry with the food, Veles barked, after he had downed an enormous baked pike in one swallow. How slow you are! Move your rotten old bones! As she retreated from the table to continue her slow circuit, Veles gave her rear end an ill-tempered kick. She didn't seem to notice, but Podovkin made a small sound of objection. The great dragon turned a flame-filled eye on him that made him tremble. But somehow Podovkin found the courage to say, Please, don't be so unkind. Then he hurriedly added, With respect, Lord Veles. A tough bow needs a sharp axe, Veles said. This is my realm and my table. I have suffered you here for only one reason. 
A greedy look stole into his eye as he reached out to tap a heavy finger against Podofkin's chest, where his Jalyeka rested. Play for me, or have you forgotten that I am also the god of musicians? Podofkin withdrew his pipe and began to play an old sentimental tune. Within the first few notes, Vele's temper sweetened wonderfully. His green and gold scales rippled with pleasure as he picked over the bones of a whole steer. How had Granny carried that in here? Velez asked, Why have you come to hell? Pudovkin lowered his pipe. We are an advanced scouting party, he said. Our commander believes there is something here of value to our cause. Cause? What cause? And what value does he seek? Pudovkin opened his mouth, but then thought it was better not to speak. The answer to one question will not please me, Veles observed. The answer to the other you do not know. Which is which? When Podovkin remained silent, Velez slammed the table with his enormous fist. The whole building shook, perhaps the whole mountain. Podovkin swallowed hard, and Blotsky and Lvov appeared to be on the verge of leaping into each other's arms. Our cause is revolution, Podovkin answered softly. The overthrow of those who are selfish and greedy. The redistribution of wealth to all so that all may share equally in it. He did his best to keep the textbook words from sounding impertinent. But when speaking of wealth to a god of wealth, how could they sound anything but? Redistribution of wealth, Feli's broad, dark brow knit. This hardly sounds revolutionary. I redistribute wealth all the time. It is all I do. With respect, Lord Veles, you trade. You take and you give in return. What is revolutionary is that we give without any request. We give without taking. That is not possible, Veles snarled. That would be like growing wheat without water or sunlight. Pudovkin blinked at him. Commander Chernoff had once spoken of a scientific experiment he had undertaken of growing wheat in a lightless room. The wheat had grown, but it had been white and limp and devoid of any kind of nutrition whatever. How odd. So many strange coincidences. But this was hell, after all. We give to the earth, the earth gives back, Vele said. That is trade. The earth does not give nothing for nothing, and we would never ask it of her. Pudovkin dipped his head. With respect, Lord Veles, he began again. Perhaps our cause is better stated thus. We seek to give to each according to his need, and take from each according to his ability. But a lazy ox eats as much as one that plows all day, Phyllis boomed outrage. The lazy ox gives nothing, and the willing one gives all. Why should the lazy ox have as much? 
Granny brought another plate, and he attacked it with gusto. He seemed to have a hundred hands and a hundred mouths as he devoured it. The lazy one should be beaten and starved, and the strong one rewarded. But we are talking of men, Lord Veles. Pudovkin was not sure why he felt he should argue for ideals he himself had so often questioned. Is it not true that all men have equal worth? No! Veles barked, and the conviction in his voice shook the air around them. All men do not have equal worth. There are great men, and there are small men. Some men are wolves, some are just dogs, and some are rats. He emphasized the last word with a sneering look at Blotsky and Lvov. Granny brought another platter of food. This time, however, Veles pushed it away roughly. I am tired of eating, he said. Give the piper a bed, Baba Makosh. And then he withdrew. He did not vanish. Rather, he dissolved into a hundred thousand glittering green snakes, all of which slithered away to hide among the riches around them. The food, the meat, the sausages, he withdrew into them as if they were his real home, and the ornate palace, simply the jeweled box that contained them. 4. An indispensable thing never has much value. Podovkin noticed that Veles did not include Blotsky and Lvov in his order to Granny, but perhaps that was because they had already crawled into a corner and were sleeping curled up upon each other. Their noses and whiskers twitched as Granny tenderly covered them with blankets of warm black wool. Podovkin thought they hardly needed covering, for both of them appeared to have grown sleek pelts of gray fur. Podovkin did not wonder at this, but he did wonder why he did not wonder. Pudovkin followed Granny as she slowly crossed the great hall, humming the same pretty little tune he had played on his Jalieka. They passed through a very small kitchen dominated by a very large stove that stood on four legs with cloven hooves like a bull's. While the stove was certainly large enough for all the food that had come out of it, the kitchen showed no signs of any effort. No dirty pots, no flowered surfaces, not a speck of disorder. Granny glanced with longing at the alcove above the large warm stove, as if within hell there was a heaven just for her. Pudovkin caught a glimpse of her face and realized that her weariness was vaster than all the hunger that gnawed his guts. He felt very sorry for her. He wished he could tuck her beneath a quilt and let her sleep for a long time. He imagined his grandfather's fields, covered in white, cold wind howling over them, but dark, dark soil underneath, black and warm and moist. She brought him to a small, warm room behind the kitchen, a place where servants would sleep, if this place had servants. There was a small bed piled high with thick quilts of black wool. He sat on the bed, and she knelt to remove his boots. He made a noise of protest, but she just tisked, and, as if to mollify a querulous child, reached into the pocket of her apron and withdrew a foil-wrapped package. My sons found these, she said, 
giving it to Podovkin. It was one of Commander Chernoff's foil-wrapped nutrient blocks. They must have dropped it in their fumbles through the woods. It does not come from hell, she added. Pudovkin tore it open and wolfed it down in three large bites. It tasted foul, as he remembered. But he felt nourishment spreading through his whole body like a glow. Granny finished removing his boots and carefully set them aside. Then she pulled back the covers and helped him under them, tucking them around his chin. He looked at her face, smooth and dark brown as buckwheat honey. He stared at her through heavy eyelids, like a sleepy child who wished to take his mother's face with him into his dreams. Her eyes were rich and green, and they went so deep, suggesting cool, dark places never visited by men, places where there was rushing water and the deepest fragrances of summer, places where he wished he could be a stag, a white stag, running without the limitations of human reason or thought. I have been so tired, and I have forgotten so much, she said, stroking his hair. It seems that men have many strange thoughts. Podovkin did not want to speak of thoughts, but he pulled himself out of her eyes and forced himself to think like a human instead of a wild creature. Men have many strange thoughts, Podovkin echoed, thinking of Commander Chernoff and his modern ideas, ideas for growing wheat in the dark, for making men synthetically ferocious, for feeding them on clay and chemicals. He thought of how to phrase such complicated ideas in a very simple way. Not because she was simple or stupid, he knew that she was neither, but because the complicated ideas themselves were actually quite stupid. Convoluted, ridiculous, they did not lend themselves to explanation. In these days, men think of how to end the oppression of the weak by the strong. That was the best he could manage, the best sense he could make of anything. Granny nodded thoughtfully, still stroking his hair with her hand. It smelled of buckwheat flour, of kneaded dough, of black salt. But it is not the strong who oppress the weak, she murmured fondly as if amused by his foolishness. It is the weak who oppress the strong. How can that be, he said sleepily. The weak have no choice but to oppress the strong, she said, for all things depend upon each other. The strong must always preserve the weak and protect them. Is that heavy responsibility itself not a kind of oppression? Perhaps. But... Budovkin felt confused. He remembered many lessons from his school days in Moscow, the words of Comrade Lenin about strength and weakness, but they didn't seem to apply to what Granny was talking about. What was strength? Was it wealth and power? Was it the collective of workers? Or was it something more than those things? The strength of growing, dying, and being born, the strength of wheat shoots pushing up through hard soil, reaching for sunlight. How could one force the sun to shine equally upon all? He felt very confused indeed, as if his head were filled with smoke. My winter husband is cold, she said as if in explanation. He has the skin of a snake, and his heart is ice. But the strong must serve the weak, 
and just as a man must have a wife, so must a god. She paused, and her green eyes became dreamy and far away. My summer husband is warmer. We dance among the wild flowers and eat honeycomb. My summer husband and I. She was silent for a long while, half smiling, lost in pleasant reverie. Then she said softly, Give me news of your grandfather. You think of him so often. But Ofkin frowned. He liked to remember his grandfather, but he did not like to speak of him. He is dead, long dead. Killed for a kulak while Podofkin had been away studying revolution in Moscow. His grandfather had been the wise, steady center of his village for many years. But he was a landowner, and so he had been one of the strong. That was what the revolutionaries had said. He'd had to die so the weak could live. Was that what Granny meant? Was that the strong protecting the weak? I never should have left you, Podofkin thought sadly. I should have protected you. He knew without a doubt that he would have died too. But it would have been better than this, better than serving those who had murdered him. But what had Granny said? Creatures give happiness when they die? What did that mean? What happiness was there in his grandfather's death? Granny watched the thoughts on Pudovkin's face. I loved your grandfather, and he loved me, Granny said. He always kept the old ways. In the spring, he brought me salt and listened when I told him when to sow millet and when to sow rye. He raised you well, but after all, it is good that you are alive. It's good that you remember. How could he have loved you? He never came to hell. Podofkin was almost asleep, and in that twilight realm he imagined he was with his grandfather again on a summer day, in a field of wheat, and if Granny answered his question. He did not hear it. 5. Tis a hard winter when one wolf eats another. Commander Chernoff and the rest of the brigade arrived in hell at dawn. Pudokin was woken from deep sleep by the distant rumble of the brigade's three tanks echoing against the high, distant walls of the vast cavern. The smell of machine oil and petrol tinged the frosty air. He heard doors being kicked open and shouted commands for residents to come out. A twist of horrible memory made his stomach ache as he remembered all the other times his squadron had torn their way into a village— remembered the terrified screams of children, of old men and women. But even as the fear gripped him, he remembered that there were no children here, only dark shadows and a god and an old woman. He quickly got out of bed and put on his boots and went to look for Granny. She was bringing a plate of bread and salt to the men of the squadron who stood in the middle of the hall, gaping with astonishment just as Podofkin had. Standing before them, still and straight and unbending as a rod of iron in a long black leather coat, was Commander Chernoff. Granny extended the plate, head humbly bowed. 
With a curt movement, the commander knocked it from her hands. It crashed into pieces on the floor. "'We are not such fools as to eat your food,' he snarled. His eyes swept his men, most of whom tried not to look guilty. It seemed that they had all been looking forward to a good meal. Commander Chernoff's eyes fell on two large, gray, furry shapes curled up in a corner, snoring. Indignation kindled in his eyes. He stormed over to the two gray forms, rousing them with kicks. Blotsky and Lavov scurried apart with high-pitched squeaks and chitters. They no longer looked at all like men now. They had become two very large rats. They crouched and cringed at Commander Chernoff's feet. "'Got into the cheese, did you? You worthless louts!' Commander Chernoff left off kicking them, but proceeded to lay into them both with his leather riding crop. It was a bourgeois affectation, but no one would ever dare suggest such a thing. Not to his hatchet-thin face, anyway.' Blotsky and Lavov squealed miserably as Commander Chernoff beat them. When the man tired of his punishment, he gestured for the rats to be held down. He reached inside his coat, where he kept a wide assortment of strange experimental concoctions, chemicals, drugs, canisters of gas. He withdrew a pair of vials and a small zippered leather case. Budovkin knew that it contained syringes. He had seen Commander Chernoff use them many times, in a variety of circumstances. His guts twisted again. "'Stop them from squirming!' the commander barked. Blotsky and Lavov squeaked miserably. Their eyes, still human, darted helplessly in search of escape. Commander Chernoff filled a syringe with the contents of one of the vials, then stepped to Blotsky's side and plunged the needle into his furry neck. Blotsky shrieked, a very human shriek of agony. Without hesitation, Commander Chernoff refilled the syringe and similarly injected Lvov. Within moments, both creatures were writhing on the floor. Pudovkin had once seen Commander Chernoff set a man on fire. The man was an anarchist spy, and he had information Commander Chernoff wanted, but he would not surrender it. When Commander Chernoff tired of asking, he had ordered the man doused in petrol. The way that man had screamed reminded Pudovkin of the way Blotsky and Lvov screamed now. But unlike the man who had burned... Their screaming lasted longer, and they did not die. Their limbs straightened back into human limbs. Their gray fur fell out in great clumps. Their yellow rat-like teeth receded. After a long time, they both lay on the floor, spent and exhausted, but returned to human form. Commander Chernoff grunted with satisfaction. I am glad to know that formulation works. He stared down at the two soldiers on the floor. That will teach you to eat the food of insurgents. Now get up, you lazy mongrels! As quickly as they could, Blotsky and Lavov struggled to stand on trembling legs. Didn't I send three of you? He frowned at them. Where's the Volinchik? Commander Chernoff always called Pudovkin the Piper, and always with a sneer. The way he said it was dangerous. It recalled serfs and kulaks, weak-minded individuals too limited to comprehend the gifts of progress. But in this place, even though the commander tried to make the word sound ridiculous, he wasn't able to. The word rang off the walls proudly. Pudovkin stepped forward. Here, comrade, he said. Commander Chernoff raised an eyebrow. You did not eat their food. 
It was an offhand remark, but his eyes narrowed with interest. Pudovkin shook his head, but did not offer an elaboration. The commander did not seek one. So, you remember their ways, he grunted. It must have been you who bent the sticks for us to follow in the wood. That was well done. The commander paused, pursing his lips and looking around the great hall. Well, where is he then? Has the dirty old snake shown himself? Granny tisked, a sound half of disapproval and half of warding. The sound drew the commander's attention, and only then did he notice her. He sucked in a breath, then took a step toward her, eyes narrowed. He looked at her closely, his head cocked with curiosity. Reaching out, he stroked her cheek with his thumb and forefinger. He rubbed the tips of his fingers together and inhaled deeply. Mushrooms, he said. Spring mud and moss. Flowers blooming on high hillsides, higher than a man can climb. Snowmelt rushing over granite in the deepest part of the forest. He smiled queerly, unpleasantly. Doesn't matter if we kill the old snake or not. It's you. I was sent to find. Then he grabbed the old woman. Pudovkin cried out. Granny gave no resistance, but the moment Commander Chernoff's hand closed around her arm, the earth began to shake. The men of the squadron brought their rifles to the ready, trying to keep their feet. A hundred tiny green snakes frothed from the floor, the walls, the ceilings, from within bags of wheat and barley, from behind barrels and boxes. They slithered across the floor toward the center of the great hall and massed together, writhing atop one another. And then, with a roar and a hiss, they became one thing. Veles, twelve feet tall, eyes blazing fire, horns smoking. His face was black with rage. Commander Chernoff did not fall to his knees, nor did he unsling the rifle he carried across his back. He did not release his grip on Granny, but stared with perfect insolence at the seething god. He even reached inside his capacious leather coat and withdrew a packet of cigarettes. He lit one, striking a wooden match with his thumbnail, and exhaled a thin, precise stream of blue smoke. You dare show his sign here! Veles roared, slashing a serpentine finger along the front of Commander Chernoff's leather coat, striking at the lightning bolt insignia he wore on his breast. Pudovkin had always thought it was just a decoration, an ornament, and honor, perhaps, bestowed by his Czechist superiors. But Pudovkin remembered then, remembered Perun, the god of the sky, of storms and lightning. The animosity between Veles and Perun was bitter and never-ending. He rubbed a dry, trembling hand over his mouth. What had Commander Chernoff gotten them into? I do not just wear his sign, Commander Chernoff sneered. I travel under his protection. I am his envoy. We have come for his wife, the Lady Makosh, Mat Zira Zemla, moist Mother Earth. She is mine in winter time, Veles hissed. The force of his fury appeared to make it hard for him to hold himself together. 
The snakes that had come together to make him kept lashing out from him, spitting venom. It is an ancient claim that even your cloud spinner respects. Oh, winter, spring, Commander Chernoff spoke the words dismissively, as if there were no meaningful distinction between them. In our great cities, we have turned night to day with electricity. We have turned barren deserts into paradises of productivity with modern chemicals and fertilizers and tractors. We can make winter into eternal spring without having to resort to the stupid, insulting rituals men have always relied on, burying salt in the ground and pouring vodka on stumps and all that. Perhaps the cloud spinner does not remember who I am, Bele said, advancing by slow, horrible steps. Perhaps he does not remember the many terrible battles we have had. Perhaps he does not remember the many times I have beaten and bled and scarred him. Bele's towered over Commander Chernoff, massive fists clenched. But if he thinks I will allow his creatures to come into my realm, my own realm, and outrage me thus, you do not understand how the world has changed, old snake. Commander Chernoff roared back with answering rage. We are not his creatures, no more than we are yours. We have done away with wealth. We have done away with the fat, greedy capitalists you have always favored. We have killed your Tsar. We have burned his family. We have torn down the churches. We have smashed the shrines. We do not grovel before you any more. We will take your power and use it. Here he gave Granny a violent shake and thrust her to the ground. But we are through asking for it. We will not beg for it. We will take it. Reaching into his pocket, he withdrew something small and shining. A golden apple. It was one of Perun's strongest weapons, stronger even than his stone arrows. Vele smirked scornfully. A man cannot hope to wield the weapon of a god, Vele sneered. Have I not mentioned how the world has changed, the commander said, lifting the apple high. Budovkin then noticed that the hand which held the apple was clad in a glove, threaded with a metallic mesh. The wire from the glove snaked up his sleeve. When the commander threw open his coat again, Budovkin saw that the wire was connected to a large green box strapped to his chest. The commander clutched the apple, and lightning sizzled outward, wrapping Veles in a lacy veil of electric fire. Veles roared striking downward with his great fists. Commander Chernoff nimbly sidestepped the giant's slow blows. Ozone embittered the air as electrical arcs crackled against scaled flesh. The battle was horrifying. Surely, Podovkin thought, even with another god's borrowed lightning, it couldn't be possible for a mere man to defeat an old god. But Vele's attacks became slower and slower. He began to pant and reel, sometimes catching his balance with his own snake's tail. Weakening, he withdrew to the end of the hall. What have you done to me? he gasped. 
Commander Chernoff paused his attack, but still kept a firm grip on the apple. Of course, I did not bring all of my men down into hell with me, he said. When we found the great tree, I sent some of them up to poison its roots with an extremely potent herbicide of my own concoction. Your great tree is dying, Veles, and you will die with it. Veles made a choking sound. It looked as though he might rush at Commander Chernoff one last time, but he did not. Pieces of him were already beginning to fall to the floor, snakes slithering sickly away. Wife! Veles roared with the last of his strength. Mother! Makosh! But Granny, curled up on the floor, was fast asleep. Lazy old woman, Veles rasped. He turned his contemptuous gaze on Commander Chernoff. I will rise again. I will never stop rising. And with that, he collapsed into a pile of snakes, torpid and tangled. And the revolution will never stop killing tyrants, Commander Chernoff said. He lifted the apple, and with one last burst of fire and brilliance, he sizzled the clot of snakes until the sickly smell of cooking flesh filled the great hall. After that, everything seemed darker and colder and quieter. Commander Chernoff tucked the apple away and peeled the glove from his hand. His flesh was covered with a latticework of deep red welts, and he winced as he flexed his fingers. I'll have to work on that, he muttered. He looked down at Granny, who was snoring softly. Come now, Grandmother Earth, he said. You do not need to be so tired. Come, let me give you something that will make you feel much better. He helped her to her feet with horrible gentleness, and she let herself be led like a sleepwalking child. Pudovkin didn't know what made him start after them or what signal Commander Chernoff gave that caused two of his men, Blotsky and Lvov, damn them, to step in his path to forestall him. But Blotsky laid a hand on Podovkin's chest, and Lvov murmured, Don't! And Commander Chernoff led Granny out of the great hall, reaching inside his coat for a small iron pill case that rattled. 6. Every seed knows its time. Pudovkin knew the commander would give her the pills, give her all the pills he had, not just the orange ones, but the brown, oily ones, like the droppings of automaton rabbits, and the rough red ones, like pieces of heart muscle, and the black, glistening ones, like bullets. While he waited with the men in the great hall, he steeled himself for the worst. They waited many hours, the herbicide that had been injected into the roots of the great tree above them continued to work to terrible effect. The roots that made up the walls dripped with a foul pus-like ichor, and worse, all of the food in Vele's larder was rotting with unnatural speed. But Ofgen had to hold his sleeve over his nose to keep from retching. Blotsky and Lavoff lounged nearby with some of the other men. They were watching a wheel of cheese collapse under the weight of roiling mold 
an obscene mass of black and green. I hope he's done with her soon, Lvov said nervously. When Commander Chernoff finally did return, Podovkin felt as though he'd been lifted into midair on a rocket, then left to drop. The commander had a girl hanging off his arm, and she was giggling, as though they had just come out of a Petrograd nightclub. She looked to be of an age just past the brink of womanhood, and she was intoxicatingly beautiful. And she was stark naked. Podovkin gaped. It couldn't be Granny. It just couldn't. There were no pills in the world that could affect such a transformation. But then, Podovkin had just seen the commander kill an old god. Nothing was impossible. As she came into the great hall, it brightened. The stench of rotting food vanished on a gust of warm wind that smelled of flowers and loam. Catching sight of Podovkin, she chirped with glee and rushed to catch him in a soft embrace, pressing her body against his. Volinchik! Volinchik! she sang. Her eyes were far too green now, a kind of chemical green that frightened him. She fizzed and bubbled and popped like a science experiment. It is wonderful, wonderful. I am no longer sleepy. My bones no longer ache, and I want to dance. Play me a tune, my darling Volinchik. Please, play me a tune. The words tumbled out of her in such a rush that she slurred and broke them. He says I can be with my summer husband, my sky husband, all the year long, that I never have to return to this cold place, to the snake with his heart of ice. And the sun will never set, Volinchik. My summer husband will shower me with rain, and we will dance and dance. Then, when will you sleep? He interrupted her gently, holding her, feeling the softness of her back with his fingers. I will never sleep, she screeched with petulant rage, tearing herself away from him. She staggered to the center of the great hall, as unsteady as a schoolgirl who'd tasted her first champagne. She pointed at Commander Chernoff. He promised I would never have to sleep again. Budovkin had never looked directly into Chernoff's eyes before. He'd never noticed. They were the color of used machine oil. What have you done? Pudovkin said, his voice soft with horror. What will you do? The commander did not answer immediately, but he swallowed hard, Adam's apple bobbing in his skinny throat. We've always wondered about you, comrade Pudovkin, he said finally. You have been given every opportunity to prove that your grandfather's errors were not yours. He reached beneath his coat, and this time he withdrew something very mundane, a pistol. He held it at his side as he pulled back the hammer. Will you throw all that away now? No, he must play me a song, the beautiful girl whimpered, groveling at the commander's elbow. Please, he must play me a song. I want to dance. Then dance you shall, my dear, Chernoff purred indulgently with a scornful little grin. There is always time for a trial later. He lifted the pistol and pointed it at Pudovkin. Play, he barked. The ache in Pudovkin's heart made him feel like playing something slow and sad. But then an idea came to him, 
an idea suggested by the smell of flowers and ripe buckwheat and birch pollen. Looking at the wild girl trembling before him, he launched into the fastest, sprightliest tune he knew. The notes buzzed in the air like static from a summer storm, and with a shriek of exhilaration, the girl began to dance, throwing her long, unbound hair all around herself. Putovkin played faster, then faster, then as fast as he could. The faster he played, the fiercer her movements became, until each time her feet struck the earth, they sent shudders up the distant, unseen cavern walls, and the mountain, already crumbling above them, began to come down. Commander Chernoff quickly realized his error. Perhaps he commanded Pudovkin to stop playing. But as he played, Pudovkin was seized in a frenzy of madness as wild as the girls, and his commander's orders became just another line of melody. Pudovkin didn't notice when the walls began to fall around him. He didn't notice when Blotsky and Lavov were smothered beneath an avalanche of rotting food. He did hear Chernoff scream, and he saw a few flashes of lightning spurt ineffectually from the box he wore on his chest. But his screaming ceased abruptly as rocks and earth tumbled down from above and crushed him. 7. If the child does not cry, the mother knows not its wants. Pudovkin woke with the worst hangover he had ever had. He found that he was lying under a tree, his pipe clutched to his chest as if someone had laid him out to be buried. It was warm, and what little snow there was left in the forest was quickly melting in a rhythm of drip, drip, drips. He sat up slowly. How long could he have been unconscious? It was the middle of winter when they'd entered the cave. And now? Spring. Climbing to his feet, pleased to discover that he could stand, he found he was very near where the mouth of the cave had been. Now it was just a sundered wreckage, surmounted by the remains of the enormous tree. It had been shattered, all the branches blown down. He heard someone coming toward him through the birches and the pines, humming the tune he had played far beneath the earth. It was the girl, wandering aimlessly, arms outstretched, letting her fingers brush the papery trunks of the birches. The trees burst into leaf and bloomed almost at once, releasing clouds of shimmering golden pollen. Her brown hair streamed around her. Her skin was as dark and shining as the pelt of a brown bearling. All the men you came with are dead, she said to him. My winter husband will be happy when he wakes. He will enjoy having new spirits to serve him. Then, he is not dead, Pudovkin murmured, looking again at the great tree's splintered remains. This time he noticed that a little sapling, healthy and green, had already sprung up from the old tree's base. It is very hard to kill gods, she said. Lifting her proud chin with strange playfulness, she eyed the dark storm clouds above, and wagged her slim, earth-brown finger at the sky reproachfully. He recognized the gesture as Granny's. Even for other gods, as if in answer, the sky rumbled, and lightning jumped between the heavy, dark clouds. Then 
Stepping close to him, she placed her hands on the sides of his head. She pressed a grandmotherly kiss on his forehead, and then a passionate one on his lips that made him clutch her fiercely close. He knew now why his grandfather had died, for love of her, and that he, too, would always love her. But even as he tried to hold her, he found she was no longer in his arms. The strong and the weak are never free of each other, she said. Sometimes one cannot even tell which is which. Then she was gone, and all he saw were the shadows of twelve white stags bounding away through the birches. Pudovkin lifted his zhalyeka to his lips and played a few notes on it. He was pleased to find that it hadn't been broken. The sound made the sapling shake its leaves with pleasure. Bowing respectfully, Pudovkin walked back the way he had come as the first raindrops fell, summer warm. And welcome back. I think it's always good to remember, don't eat the food under the mountain. Or under the podcastle, for that matter. Lest we compel you to dance on over to forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. Or dancing your feet off in the interim. I'd say don't listen to that music either, but ha! You're already doing that. Go ahead, drink that coffee, that tea, that wine, eat the food, see? You've already been compelled. Because here's feedback, this time for Nathaniel Lee's Engine Song, a rondeau, read by Bob Eccles. This was the story of some trains getting up off their wheels and walking literally off the rails, leaving a small town wondering what would become of them. Feedback was pretty positive. Richard Babley said, the premise of the story was that the trains got up and simply walked away, which was absolutely ludicrous, but it worked. I have spent some time thinking about why it worked. Maybe it was the humor. Maybe it was that every single character had an unwavering belief in the occurrence. I think it was because the story was actually a tall tale set in the West and not a weird Western in the typical sense. A tall tale asks you to believe something from the outset that is unbelievable and uses that event to achieve its motives, which is exactly what made this tale so effective. This was one of my favorite stories that I have listened to on Podcastle so far. Oh, cool. And Fire Turtle said, I thought the imagery of the wild trains whistling into the night sky was arresting. It was an interesting inversion that the trains sought the peace and emptiness of the wilderness when they were created to bring civilization to those self-same places. The humans and the trains were seeking an experience, the opposite of which was available to them. Thanks very much for those thoughts. March on over to forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single contribution goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcastle running come hell or high water. Apparently, when you're a floating castle in the sky, you still got to worry about some of those things for some strange reason. Thanks. 
Before we get going, I want to make sure and drop a promo from this week's excellent narrator for his excellent meta-horror audiobook, Interference. If you enjoy creepy horror books, if you enjoy them for free, be sure and check it out. I'm speaking as a fan here. I can't wait to see what Eric does next. Something wants in to your head through this audiobook. Thanks, Eric. That was our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. Our editorial team here at PodCastle is led by Anna Schwind and myself. We're assisted by LaShawn Wanick and Graham Dunlop, who read submissions. And we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for our extraordinary sound man, Peter Wood. On behalf of all of us, thank you very much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week, leaving Russia behind for Thailand with a story called Pie and Knock. Until then, this is Dave Thompson for Podcastle reminding you that the weak have no choice but to oppress the strong. We'll see you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from Fyodor Dostoevsky, who said, To go wrong in one's own way is better than to go right in someone else's. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all next week.